We're continuing our journey through the last book of the Old Testament. And as you might expect from the last book of the Old Testament, we see God begin to connect Hebrew events, Hebrew events, Old Testament worship with the New Testament event and the worship of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. We're going to see that connection here in this morning's message as well. So let's read together Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it from favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Stop here. Last week we looked at verses 10 through 12. We're going to take a step back this week, though, to look at our third and final big concept in Malachi. To understand this book, and really to understand, I think, life, We have to understand this concept of covenant. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Covenant. This word is used seven times in the book of Malachi out of a mere 1,193 words. (laughs) Doesn't sound like a good percentage. But per capita, if you will, uh, covenant is used at a rate ten times more frequently than almost every other book in the Old Testament. It is chock full of this concept of covenant. So it's important for us to understand. I don't want to assume we know what this means. Now, for some of you who are more maybe accustomed to reading the Bible or you grew up in church, covenant can be a more familiar word. But, uh, please, Christian man, Christian woman, let's step out from the pews. For a moment here, okay? And consider that if you've never been to church before, this is your first time in a church, or first time in a while, or someone uses the word covenant, say in, uh, I don't know, real life, then it is a creepy word. It sounds creepy. If I'm about to pay my mechanic, right, and he instead says, let's you and I enter into a covenant, in exchange of payment for my services. <laughs> right? that's, that's, that's creepy. I'm, looking, I'm, I'm thinking he wants to abduct my firstborn child and bring him into his comet-worshipping cult. <laughs> right at this point, it's a sad. Like, where's the Kool-Aid? It's a creepy word in general. You don't really hear it. And if so, it's in a negative context. So this morning, we're going to try and decreepify. So we're going to do this by understanding the covenant and how it can combat some of the strongest objections, some of the strongest objections we have concerning how God relates to people. And not only that, 
covenant actually equips us for stronger relationships. Stronger relationships with the people who are most significant in our lives. So let's decreepify this. We need God's help, though. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you for help. Spirit, we ask for your presence as we try to understand this big word, covenant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's our uh, itinerary over the next half hour. Uh, I want us to get to know your covenants. Secondly, why it matters. The dilemma, both then in the Old Testament and now. And finally, we're going to look at the new covenant. The new covenant. So, but we've got to pay our dues, right? We'd lo- it's great to get right into how the Bible applies to our life, but you kind of, sometimes you've got to pay your dues with the Bible and get into knowing things first. So let's get to know our covenants. First, let me give you a definition. We'll start out with that. A covenant is a contract or treaty between two usually unequal parties. They can be equal, but usually unequal parties, in which one party guarantees to protect the other in exchange for unyielding fidelity and obedience. All right, so there's a trade-off, generally, in these covenants. And that brings us to the title of this morning's uh, sermon, which is Covenant, More Than a Contract, but More Than a Love Song. This is important because in our society, our society in general is losing contact with any kind of relationship that resembles a covenant. And the way the Bible uses it, and the way the ancient Near East used it. Because on the one hand, a covenant is more than a contract. It is that, but it's more than that. It's not just a formal, you know, kind of sign on the dotted line agreement. The party in power agreed to come to the, par- to the aid of a weaker party. Often a strong nation agreed to come to the aid of a weaker nation whenever that weaker nation picked up the bat phone. These agreements in the ancient Near East were also a celebration. They weren't just mere formalities, mere business contracts. They were a celebration, usually accompanied by these sumptuous feasts where royal families would mingle together lasting for days. By all accounts, there was a real warmth. So it's more than just something formal, cold. But it's also more than a love song. Right? It's not just, I care for you, and I'm going to sing to you. Right? But I pledge myself and, not just myself, my well-being to you. Alright, covenants in the ancient Near East were also a contract. They were put into effect by a ritual. The suzerain, which was the power party, and the vassal, which was kind of the weaker party, would each pass between halves of animals. I know that sounds weird to us. They would pass between halves of animals as if to say to each other, and before their gods, may the same fate come to me should I fail to live up to my end of this agreement. There was a seriousness that came with this agreement. It wasn't just, oh, I love you, let's send cards to each other. It was, look, may we be torn in half if I don't come to your aid. May I be torn in half if I don't show faithfulness to you. This is a pledge, and that's, by the way, where that term to cut a covenant comes from. The Hebrew word has the sense of cutting, berit. Because there was this passing between two halves of animals. That's another story. 
In the Old Testament, we have three major covenants. Let's get to know them a little bit. First, the Abrahamic covenant. Let's read Genesis 15. Around this time, a guy named Abraham comes along, and God just chooses him. After these things, the word of the Lord, this is Genesis 15, 1 through 7. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. He and his wife couldn't have a child. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. It was, he was basically a bondservant of Abraham's. And that's who all of his property and his will would go towards his bondservant instead of a child. Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I was going to read real quickly too. This, this, there's a little bit more detail in Genesis 17. I'll, I'll breeze through this. Abraham was 99 years old. He comes back. God affirms this covenant to him. I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, which has the sense of father of nations. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Your king shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout the generations, this everlasting covenant. And he goes down and basically says, I'm going to give you this land, and here's the sign of the covenant. Your offspring will be circumcised. It's basically the summary there at the end. Now, God promises two things to this man, Abram. He's going to have a long lineage, which will become many nations. And secondly, we see that God will give his people a choice piece of property. It's going to come his way. In return, we, well, really, he doesn't ask really anything in return. In fact, the circumcision really is more of a seal of the covenant, a confirmation of the covenant, than is a stipulation or an obligation. Rather, instead of some sort of uh, obligation, the only pleasing response that Abraham gives, we find in, in verse 6, remember before in chapter 15, Abraham's belief was credited to him as righteousness. So he didn't do anything, he just believed. So that's the first one, Abrahamic covenant. Some 400 years later, we have a different covenant called the Davidic covenant. It's the covenant of David. You can find the narrative of this covenant in 2 Samuel 7, but I'm just going to read from Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, where the psalmist says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. David gets this promise. An unconditional promise, a covenant that God will preserve his royal line forever. And nothing is really required in return. God says he will discipline kings. He will discipline the kings, his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons if they don't 
follow God and love Him, but that doesn't mean He will do away with His promise. He will always keep that covenant. He never revokes it. There's a third covenant. And between these two covenants is the Mosaic covenant. Now, God said, we read briefly back in um, Genesis about the Abrahamic covenant, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Alright, that's what God says. That's kind of the, the big phrase of the covenant. I will be your God and you shall be my people. The one problem was that people grew disobedient and they grew hardened to the idea of being God's people. So God had to basically spell it out for them. Parents, you know what this is like. You tell your kids to use common sense. Uh, I told my basketball team I coached this year for these little kids, we only have two rules. Show respect for the coach, show respect for each other. Well, guess what? There are more rules added, right? <laughs> because, you know. Similarly, God is saying, no, here's specifically how you need to follow me. Let me spell it out for you. So through the Mosaic Covenant, God makes more specific promises, which is good news. He promises ongoing health, uh, agricultural abundance, these sorts of things, and, you know, etc., but he also gives demands, gives specific demands, specific obedience, or else you get a curse. You get one of the ten D's. How would you like this? If you, if you don't follow God and persistently disobey Him, you get one of the ten D's. Death, disease, destruction, drought, dearth, danger, destruction, oh, it said destruction already, defeat, deportation, destitution, disgrace. All can be yours if you fail to obey the covenant. Here's the point. This covenant was conditional. You don't obey it, you don't get the good stuff. So we have here these three types of covenants. Now follow here, follow this with me if you would. These three covenants fit in really to two basic kind of covenants. And this is cool, by the way, because God, again we see God relate to and through culture. We saw this a few weeks ago with the gospel, if you remember this. That the gospel was a common word for permanent, life-altering, history-changing news that was commonly used. And then God uses it, as we see it, in the, you know, in the four gospels, in the New Testament. Here, God does the same thing. He takes a concept in the ancient Near East, and he uses it with his people. Only he's more faithful. Two kinds of covenants in the ancient Near East that God's appealing to here. One is this royal grant idea. Now, a royal grant was an outright gift. Usually it was a piece of property or a, or a really nice title. So you get a gift that's not dependent on any present or future accomplishments. It's just a free gift. It's unconditional. This is the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. But there was another kind of covenant in ancient years that was very common. And that was called the Suzerainty Treaty. The Suzerainty, just hard to say, so I just like to call it the Suzy Treaty. These were specific promises made that were dependent on a response of loyal obedience. You obey, you get the promises. So it was, it was conditional. This is the Mosaic Covenant. You see this? Now, here's the rub. Neither of them worked. In the history of Israel, neither covenant secured either the faith of the people or the obedience of the people. This didn't happen. Why? Why did neither work then? And by the way, it's not God's fault. It was the heart of man. But God did prepare something different. We'll get to that in a moment. Why did neither work at that point? Number one, 
the lazy and comfortable. The lazy and comfortable tended to look to the security of the promise. They looked to this royal treaty to give them comfort. They looked to the Abrahamic covenant and said, Oh, yes, we're God's people. Forget about it. Just, you know, I'm going to watch my version of football on Sundays and just do my thing. We're going to get to heaven. It's going to happen. We're God's chosen people. We're going to prosper. They were all about the unconditional mercy of God. All about that. But inwardly, they needed the law and they needed justice. So on the one hand, you got that. On the other hand, you have the proud legalist who elevated the law, who elevated the, the Susie Treaty to give them comfort. The Mosaic Covenant gave them comfort. Became, they became either judgmental when they succeeded in obeying the law or became embittered when they failed. This was all about for them the conditional obedience of man. What they really needed inwardly was the freedom brought about by unconditional mercy. Do you see this? You're tracking me with this here? It's important because these questions, these issues, this problem are shown. These, these are shown in questions that people are asking today when it comes to God relating to people. They're asking it today. Not through royal grants and Susie treaties and all these things. Mosaic covenants. Just this past week, I had an opportunity to talk to a woman uh, who, who told me she's not a Christian. Okay, and we had a great conversation about grace being the thing that separates Christianity from all other religions. It's grace. It's this free gift from God. At that point, she looked at me and said, yeah, but what? wait about this. What about this? If God forgives, won't people take every opportunity take advantage of that and never really change? Right? They'll just accept that forgiveness and say, okay, got that, and move on with their lives? You ever heard that question? Or some form of it? It's a question all, probably all of us have asked at some point. This kind of person. By the way, I'm confident this person, when I was talking with her, had um, seen this principle up close and personal in her life. Um, she had seen many people take advantage of her, she was a very compassionate person, people who were privileged, people who had been shown more favor in their life, who take advantage of folks. And we want to see some obedience to the law, or if not some obedience, some justice applied to their lives, right? And so you have, you're lazy and comfortable. In our lives today, it's, it's often folks, and I'm including ourselves in this conversation, folks who say, it's all relative. God will love me no matter what. Most of them need a response to live out the law. Whereas, some of us exalt the law. It's a law of some kind. But finally, they can hardly live up to their own expectations, much less God's. Right? Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you know someone who's there now. And we found the world to be harsh. A harsh and judgmental place. And we need the promise of unconditional mercy. Do we can approach God no matter what? The question here is often asked, is, doesn't Christianity slash the church basically involve just being a good person or obeying a bunch of rules? 
That's the question many people have about Christianity, about Jesus, about the church. That's obeying a bunch of rules. About being a good person up front. Now, I was speaking with a Comanian friend of mine uh, not too long ago who said that when he talks to the average Comanian man on the street about Jesus or the church, their immediate response was, oh, I couldn't go to that church. Or, or I can't be a part of that. And when he asked why, I often said, I'm just, look, I'm just not a good person. My life is too messed up. I see all these people going to church who are hypocrites, etc. I can't be a part of that. I'm not good enough. Do you see this? This question, this covenant idea, is not just some dusty Old Testament theological quandary right, between two kinds of covenants. But this is the major philosophical and moral struggle that everyday people are having with how God relates to people. How does he do it? How do you reconcile this issue of unconditional promise but law and justice? Does God relate to me unconditionally, all promise or conditionally? Promise in response to condition. Um, I uh, heard uh, Sinclair Ferguson, who's a great theologian, former pastor, let's say this, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but he said basically he saw two kinds of people in pastoral ministry and, and counseling people and, and talking to people one-on-one. He said the overly comforted and the significantly discomforted. And he said that his job was pretty simple. Really his job of, of encouraging people and counseling people was pretty simple. It involved two things. Comforting the discomforted and discomforting the comfortable. That's pretty much my job. Comforting the discomforted, discomforting the comfortable. That's exactly what God does through the new covenant. Through the new covenant. Turn with me, if you would, if you have a Bible here, to Jeremiah 31. That's on page 558. And the Bibles we provided for you. If you have a Bible with you, well, I'm just hoping you know where Jeremiah is. <laughs> Jeremiah 31, page 558. I want to read this. It's going to be also up on the screen, but I want us to turn there because I want to refer to it quite a bit here. God says this. This is the new covenant. He probably has a chapter title that says new covenant there. God basically prophesies it's coming some 500 plus years earlier. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each person teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. A couple things here. First, in the past, God has honored his end of both covenants. This is important. 
God has honored his end of both covenants. Notice here that the Mosaic conditional covenant is explicitly referenced. Not only in this, this verse, verse uh, 32, but throughout, if you go back and read chapter 31, which I wanted to do but didn't have time for, if you read all of chapter 31, you get this mix of the conditional covenant and the unconditional covenant. It's pretty cool, and it leads up to this new covenant. But you have the, the, the conditional covenant, the Mosaic covenant, but you also have the Abrahamic unconditional covenant explicitly referenced in the same verse. Yes, it talks about the covenant made when coming out of Egypt, which is Moses' covenant. But then he talks about taking them by the hand. I was the husband to them. This is an unconditional fidelity that God is showing to his people. He's talking about this Abrahamic, I will never forsake you covenant. You see that? Okay. But through Christ, so, so God has honored his end of both covenants, but through Christ and the new covenant. God has honored his end and our end of the covenant. That's the brilliancy of this all. The glory of this. He's honored both. Look here with me. Verse 33, the law is still a concern. Right? I will put my law within them. It's not as if God says, away with the law. Jesus is here. Because Jesus comes as our brother, Hebrews says. Interesting term. You don't think about Christ our brother but Hebrews puts it that way. That means he's not only is he like us, he had to be like us. Because to satisfy the law, a human being had to live a fully righteous life in accordance with it. He had to satisfy the entire law, not break any of it. That's what Jesus did. Now you may also remember a scene with Jesus and John the Baptist. And Jesus says, John... Baptize me. And John's like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, come on. You're, you know, you can baptize yourself. Right? I'm John. Remember? The non-Messiah. Non-God. But what does Jesus say? Do you remember this? He says, we've got to do this. To what? That all righteousness may be fulfilled. In other words, it wasn't that Jesus didn't break the law. He fulfilled positively all righteousness. So now Jesus, who fulfills the whole law and all righteousness, sends the Holy Spirit, and we trust Him, sends the Holy Spirit, who writes the law, it says here in verse 33, on our hearts. Did you read this? This is powerful. The Spirit writes the law on our hearts. He enables us to carry out the law, to freely do what it says, because the weight is lifted. What do I mean by that? The weight of its punishment, of its curse, is lifted, which actually frees us to follow it. It's a radical mystery. But see also the concern in this, these verses for God's unconditional covenant. He says in verse 33, right, right after what I just spoke on, I will be their God and they will be my people. Right? The refrain of the Abrahamic covenant. But how can people by nature rebellious be faithful to God, as his people. We can know and encounter God directly because Jesus tore down the divide between a holy God and rebellious, sinful man. By being an utterly holy man and taking upon himself the sin of the world. And then we read in verse 34, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. 
In other words, in the past, as we looked at being a priest, we remember this from a number of weeks ago. A priest, you go to a priest to basically, you give them an animal, they make a sacrifice for sin, you're forgiven. You had to go to the priest to get to God. No more. You can know God directly. You can come to Him directly for grace and mercy. So you see what we have on the one hand. God empowers us. He frees us by His Spirit, writing the law in our hearts and minds to actually obey the law, which we couldn't do when we were under its curses. We can also go to Him directly when we fail for grace and mercy. So Jesus is saying, basically Jesus on the one hand does this for us. He says, know God intimately. To the legalist, he says, know God intimately. You can go to him at any time for grace and mercy. To the fat and happy who sit at home, he says, no more excuses. Because through me, by the Holy Spirit, I will write this law in your heart and mind, enable you to fill it as a response to my love. Now, let's apply this. Let's apply this to lives. What does this mean for us? couple things. I want to challenge us this morning, one, to relate your circumstances to the covenant. Relate your circumstances to the covenant. Friends, we need to believe this. We need to believe to have hope that He will fulfill promises, not only to us, but through us. And that's the glory of the new covenant. It's not just a promise to us, it's a promise through us. Now I know that some of us are dealing with large tasks. You're in the thick of battle. Maybe it's with a job, with a spouse, with kids, with debt, with temptation, with an idol. And yeah, during these times, you know, we definitely need to believe that God is with us. But we equally need to trust that God will work through us in these times. That he will produce results. He will do what his covenant has said. The most important result being what? Persevering in obedience and faithfulness in the heat of battle. Isn't that one of the hardest things to do? God brings these times along to us and he wants to work his new covenant through us that we can be empowered to actually respond in love and faithfulness to him even when times are hard. And what it says here in Jeremiah 31 is, God is saying, I will do that. I will do that. It will be so ingrained on your hearts. It will be a natural response. So that's number one. Number two, way to apply this to your life. Apply the new covenant to human covenants. Apply the new covenant to human covenants. Next week, we'll start to look at the covenant of marriage here in Malachi chapter 2. We read about that briefly this morning. And I think what we're called to do is to model what our Father has been to us. To be a people of promise and faithfulness on the one hand, and a people who respond with obedience on the other hand. Even when others don't do likewise. When people don't give us that in return. Marriage. To be that kind of person in your marriage, that kind of person in, with your friends, as a parent, with your children, as a boss, 
as an employee, as part of this body of Christ. What a testimony this can be, living out the new covenant in our relationships. What a testimony that can be to an onlooking world. Last night, uh, my son had a, a, a banquet for a sport he's been playing. And at this banquet, uh, this ultra-distance runner spoke at this banquet. His name was Paul Staso. Uh, he was like a superstar, not just a marathon runner, but like he'd run like 50, 60 miles at a time. You know, I don't know what planet he came from, man. That's, that's crazy. It's crazy. I didn't know it was possible until I heard his testimony. And he shared a lot about how God actually took running away from him at one point in his life because it was the one area of his life that he never gave to God. He always said, God, this is my, this is my part right here. This is, this is my thing. And God actually took it away from him and miraculously brought it back. Um, it's a pretty cool story, but... But later in his life, he started running again, and his wife and his oldest daughter were talking about one day about the lack of fitness in today's youth. Uh, he lives in, in Montana, right? Uh, they eat a lot of, you know, there's a lot of meats there. And I don't blame him, lots of steak. <laughs> I love that. But anyway, uh, he and his daughter mapped out a plan for her fourth grade class to run. And however many miles they ran cumulatively over this period of time, he would match it. Well, he didn't know that the fifth grade would also join in. I think maybe another grade, right? So they all joined in and they all ran over a period of months, these miles. Well, basically, he had to run the length of the United States. And this was his agreement. He had committed this. That's a long way. Uh, especially, you know, I know Forrest Gump did it, but you know, come on. That's an unusual case. Well, anyhow, he did it. 2006, he did this. He had a jogging stroller that weighed about 80 pounds, he said, complete with like a solar panel so it could power up his cell phone and iPod. And he literally just had this jogging stroller, you know, this baby stroller, going across America. Great photos, by the way. But one of the interesting things he said is he ran across America. He said one of those interesting things to him was what people would say. They would ask, of course, the question, you know, why are you doing this? Now, why are you running across America? I, I would ask that question. Why are you running across America? And he simply said, I made a promise to my 10-year-old daughter. And people were just incredulous. They were just floored. They did not understand. This was like a foreign language he was speaking. He said, it was so interesting. People just had no concept. Like, why? What? You made a promise. Yeah, I, okay, I make promises too person of promise and follow through, person of promise and obedience, was a flooring testimony to an onlooking world. Friends, we had that opportunity. We had that opportunity. How do we do this? Remembering that phrase, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Do you hear what God is saying when he says that? I will be your God. He is giving of himself to us. He is sacrificing part of himself to us. He's saying, I'm giving this to you. I'm giving myself to you. God of the universe, I will be your God. The Bible says in 1 John 4 that we love because he first loved us. He gave us his love first. 
I just want to close with this quote by J.I. Packer. God's end in all things is his own glory, that he should be manifested, known, admired, and adored. Now that statement is true, but it's incomplete. It needs to be balanced by a recognition that through setting his love on human beings, God has voluntarily, listen to this, voluntarily bound his own final happiness with theirs. That's pretty amazing. Let's pray. All of this, Lord, through a covenant, you are willing to bind up your final happiness with ours through this new covenant. That you stake your glory and your love on not just Jesus Christ, but people believing on him. What a God who would do this. Jesus, I pray that the covenant, this idea of covenant would radically influence the way we read the Bible. Most importantly, the way we live our lives. That in the midst of hard times and difficult circumstances, we remember we have a God who's not only with us, that we can come to at any time for help, but who works through us and enables us to obey. And Lord, you desire this in our relationships. God, may we be people who model the covenant God. The God who not only wants to show us love and promise and unconditional mercy, but the God who asks his people to come through and helps them do it. God, help us be these kind of people to our spouses, to our kids, to, to our employees, to our friends. May it glorify you to an onlooking world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.